Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over the holidays, we're going to be releasing highlights from past episodes from this year every morning of Hanukkah and each day during the 12 days of Christmas. If you're a founder or investor and looking to meet more folks in the ecosystem, each week I host a networking event on my Upstream channel. The link is in the show notes to join on mobile. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm excited to share highlights from my episode with Soraya Darabi, one of the founding partners of TMV where she focuses on the future of living well. Some of her investments include Classtag, The Wing, and Aliou. Without further ado, here's Soraya. What attracted you first to media and then becoming an entrepreneur? Well, I didn't know that entrepreneurism was a real job, uh, first and foremost. <laughs> so I, um, I majored in what I thought was interesting at the time. Uh, I still think it's interesting. I went to Georgetown and I, I was an English major with a concentration in journalism. And while there... I had um, the lucky break to intern for the WashingtonPost.com. So I worked for the WashingtonPost.com and I was actually also working for Sony Music, different, different aspects of media, I suppose. And I noticed two things were happening simultaneously, like almost in parallel, and, and we call it convergence now. But Sony, all of the music was being digitized. So they would send me boxes of, of CDs every month to play at local radio stations, college radio stations. I'd go to Howard and American and GW and, and Georgetown and say, hey, play this Tori Amos or John Mayer song. And everyone's like, that's cool. Where's the MP3? And I'd report that back to Sony and they're like, oh, right, right. And then I uh, received uh, an internship at the same time, which I was also very fortunate to have. The Sony job, by the way, was a dream. And I, I interned at the WashingtonPost.com and I noticed that a lot of the reporters I was becoming friendly with on Bagel Mondays uh, were asking me to help them understand what RSS stood for, how to better enhance their real-time news and journalism. So I moved to New York after college and began working at Condé Net, which is what it was called at the time. It's Condé Nast Digital now for the various websites across communications and marketing. Serendipitously, uh, a few months after I began that job, Wired Magazine acquired Reddit. And it was then that um, everything started to make sense to me because the Reddit founders walked into Condé Nast. They were my age. Uh, they were cooler than me. They got to wear hoodies where... I, I was wearing, you know, the four inch heels that was kind of like the Condé uniform at the time. And I was really a geek at heart. I still am. Started asking them all these questions about what they were building and, and realized that what, what they had created had the potential to truly 
change and transform media as we knew it. So I would say it was at that point in my life, age 22, when I became truly obsessed with how media and technology were colliding. And then the New York Times job, which is where I'll end, you brought up, came pretty quickly thereafter. So two years after I worked at Condé Nast Digital, I moved to the New York Times and I was fortunate enough to be the first manager of social media at the New York Times. Talk to me a little bit about your founding journey and what led you to eventually switching and starting a trail mix. The New York Times world opened me up to all sorts of new possibilities. I, I, as I mentioned, from age 23 to 26, I was the manager of social media and digital partnerships for them. And that warranted an air ticket a few times a year to San Francisco, where I'd be knocking on the doors of, you know, Facebook back when they had the original office in Palo to, you know, being the first media brand on Twitter and beta to being the first partner channel on YouTube and to partnering with a lot of startups that weren't well-known household names at the time. I think we were one of the first media companies to work with Tumblr. I remember giving uh, David Karp the tour of the newsroom back when we were both in our 20s. And we were, um, you know, the earliest, among the earliest users of Foursquare, mainly because my friends Dennis and Naveen founded Foursquare and, and they said, hey, do you want to test this out in beta? We need a BlackBerry beta user. So it was just a funny, funny time and place to be at the intersection of media and social media. But it opened up my eyes to the fact that these young guns, uh, most of whom were men, but my age and very friendly and, and, and really brilliant, how they were, again, transforming the communication style that, that I was accustomed to communicating in. And I wanted to, to learn what they knew. So I quit my job to work for a cloud computing startup in Dumbo, Brooklyn, of which uh, one of the co-founders, Darshan, now works with us at TMV, our venture capital fund. So all things come full circle. But this cloud computing startup was chock full of really brilliant people. That's the easiest way to describe it. And we were, you know, arbitraging Amazon Web Storage and creating new verticals to sell uh, enterprise style into various industries. And it was exactly what I always dreamed of, as opposed to leveraging new social media tools for, for communication and marketing purposes of media companies. Now I was behind the driver's seat and, and talking to engineering teams about building said products. So that's what got me acclimated into the world of entrepreneurship. Um, that company was sold to Facebook pre-IPO, which is great for the founders and, and, and earliest team members. Um, the mafia that I worked with uh, went on to build some incredible companies and actually, interestingly, two different VCs, no, three, three, three VCs came out of that era in New York. So really good time and place to be in the New York tech ecosystem. We were down the street from the original Etsy office. Uh, we shared space with Venmo when they were first being incubated in Birchbox. It was just awesome. And then uh, co-founded with some friends in San Francisco, an app that helped people discover food based on their geolocation. So Using the original Foursquare API, we helped people discover great dishes based on their location and specifically dishes, not restaurants. The app was called Food Spotting, and we grew to many, many, many users in our heyday. It was named Apple and Wired's App of the Year. And within a three-year time span, the company sold to OpenTable. OpenTable then sold to Priceline and part of the Priceline roll-up a year and a half later. So those liquidity events then led to me becoming an angel investor. Now I'm six years or seven years past where I began with my career. And um, as an angel investor, I noticed a couple of things. One is the, the types of deals that I was most passionate about were typically underfunded. So I've always been really passionate about health and well-being. I'm the daughter of a public health professor. And so some of the companies that I thought were intuitive from day one have very public stories about you know having a more difficult time attracting capital. And realized 
over many years. So I'm now an angel investor in over 20 companies and an advisor to many as well, often advisor investor pre-trail mix and at trail mix now just TMV gets my capital. But um, but had a, a pretty good track record, you know, and landed with a 172% realized IRR on those SPVs, for instance, and um, had to ask a friend who was a venture capitalist if that was a good track record, <laughs> because I didn't know. <laughs> Seriously, uh, five, five, five exits in, I, I sent my track record to a friend and I said, hey, is this any good? And he just kind of scoffed at me for being an idiot for asking, uh, because I didn't realize that, you know, major VCs have something like at best a 15% IRR for their first fund. And what I had created was basically a mini fund of 20 companies. So took that track record to a friend, Marina Hachipateras, whom I've known since we went to uh, Georgetown together as undergrads, which means we've known each other for 17 years. And she had the most remarkable career. She um, worked for a 200 year old maritime shipping business, which happens to be her family's business and modernized them, um, helped them become more environmentally friendly and became the vice chair of the Environmental Intertanko Committee, informing the IMO of best practices for maritime mobility. And she became an expert on all things electronic vehicles and the way in which maritime's converging with tech. And we sat down over dinner one night because she was telling me the story of how she helped lead the international roadshow for her family's maritime company, Dorian. It's uh, LPG on the New York Stock Exchange now. And how she raised 135 million to bring that company, which has like a market cap of a billion, into the public sphere. And I was blown away. And it sort of dawned on both of us that, you know, I had really good deal flow and a track record in angel investments that materialized. And she had institutional investor relations experience and relationships and could teach me a thing or two about um, professionalizing an outfit. So we got together in 2016 as partners and launched TMV Fund One. That's amazing. And I know you touched on it. One of your focuses or, or, or maybe your, your main focus is the care economy. I wanted to know just how, you, how are you thinking about care today and, 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 and what that actually means? So you hit the nail on the head. That's one of my favorite categories to invest in. And, and the care economy to us, us expands well beyond healthcare. We realized that when we started to talk about consumer or enterprise healthcare, people would want to put you in a bucket venture capital. Are you investing in Mars shot cures for cancers? Gosh, I wish I knew how to diligence pharma companies, but we don't. Are you investing in hardware? We could, probably not our sweet spot. Um, although, you know, we have aura rings and Fitbits in my house. Where we determined we would be most applicable to help uh, founders along, we're in underserved, undercapitalized, and underventured arenas like non-traditional healthcare. That would be functional medicine, microbiome and gut health, which is growing substantially year over year. Women's health, which is now clumped into femtech. But you know, just five years ago, I was reading a, a well-known healthcare reporter for CNBC uh, tweet that she said, remember when four years ago, investors said to me, they didn't think women's health was a big market. And she wrote, duh, only half the population. These are the kinds of, of conversations we have at TMV all the time. You know, why, why have Roe and Hims raised so much capital, but it's really hard to find a direct-to-consumer birth control company? You know, why is it that reproductive uh, and fertility preservation is so expensive, which is what led us to invest in Kind Body, which is, you know, more affordable healthcare for women in, in, in many respects. So care economy for us, it's a $7.5 trillion market, no big deal. It encompasses personal care, health care, child care, elder care, and community care. And a lot of the core customers in what we call the care economy are women. And we view women as marketing multipliers. 
And as women GPs ourselves, our team is half women, half men, but you know, we're, we're a women owned and led fund. We thought maybe we could be helpful to the predominantly women founders who were building companies in the care space. In our first fund that included backing Lindsay Allman, who created Umbrella, which is a task rabbit for citizens over the age of 60. And in, I mentioned Kind Body by Gina Partasi, who's amazing. We um, have invested four times over in Dr. Robin Burson and her company, Parsley Health. Uh, we were among uh, the earliest investors in Work Bravely, which is mental health care for, for corporate America. So those are some examples of companies in fund one that we were excited about. And in our second fund, our very first investment was in a business called Thrive Inside, started by Richard Chen in Santa Clara, California. And this is a microbiome and gut health company that is, focuses on diagnostics, analytics, and testing. So it's a really, really, really exciting space to plan. That's Care Economy. And then, as I alluded to, we also invest in the future of work, and we invest in tech-enabled sustainable solutions. So at TMV, three categories. They're large enough to basically change every facet of our lives, but it's specific enough for founders to know when to come speak to us. I've had on investors that, you know, some of them focus on consumer or or generalists that aren't thematic. They want the entrepreneur to really bring them. The The job of the entrepreneur is, is the insight brings them into the future. Other investors that, you know, maybe are very thematic that are thinking about the future very intensely and, and you're trying to find maybe companies that maybe match their their thesis. We'd love to like learn how you think about it because your themes are very like, you know, very broad, massive industries, like like trillion dollar industries, right? But just want to know how you think about that that relationship between what the entrepreneur needs to bring to the table. Okay, it's a really excellent question um, and a thoughtful one. I think it's honestly always going to be both. And again, it, it's, it's when an investor says we only do X that I tend to be skeptical. At the beginning and middle of each year, as a fun exercise, our team writes down predictions. It's not necessarily informing our theses, so to speak, but it's an opportunity for us to just kind of do what we love doing most as entrepreneurs. We dream up ideas that we wish existed. And we don't try to put a dollar sign around these ideas. Um, we just say, wouldn't it be great if and we tend to limit these ideas within our three core categories. So I'm not asking them to come up with like, again, that, that moonshot cure for cancer pharma company, because that would be great if it existed. But um, in the past, we, we've come up with ideas like, ah, Henry the dentist was so great for dentistry and it's worked out well for our company. Why don't we do the same thing for dog grooming? Because many of us own animals on the team. And what then ends up happening is you tweet out the idea. So that same day, that we did the exercise, I posted on Twitter, does anyone know of a mobile grooming company that comes to your home and I can order it on an app? Boom, two decks appeared in my inbox that day. So there is a little bit of premonition in being a VC. Now that's obviously a game. We take it more seriously. So over time we start to hone and cultivate our own ideas and say, well, why do we believe that should exist? What are the market conditions that would allow for it? What are the new technologies that permit such a thing to happen in the world? And then, you know, it's not going to always be as easy as posting on Twitter or LinkedIn. Is anyone building this? Sometimes it comes up in conversation with other VCs. Have you seen anything that's a little too early for you? We like early that you might want to pass along our way. In fact, that happened in Fund One with a conversation with Rebecca Caden at Union Square Ventures. I was telling her about how we, you know, love the logistics aspect of privatized recycling and had recently invested in Gooder out of Atlanta, Georgia, which is like the flex port for excess food solving food waste and food security at the same time. And she said, oh, have you thought about talking to Ryan, the founder of Ridwell in Seattle? 
which is a privatized recycling business focused on um, making it easier for consumers and soon businesses, so B2B to C, um, to recycle more than just paper or plastic and to have reconnaissance on where their things go. And it was thanks to her saying, this is a company I'm tracking, the founder seems great, introducing me to Ryan and then we were the, the first institutional investor in Ridwell. So Ridwell has gone on to raise capital from Freestyle and, and Collaborative Fund and we're very, very lucky to be a part of their success story. It's got an NPS score of 94 and growing leaps and bounds every month. But um, those, are, those are kind of examples of how we lean into our theses more so than not, but we're also open to serendipity. What are some things that you think should, uh, should happen in order to increase backing founders that, that come from more diverse backgrounds? The, the answer begins by looking at yourself, man in the mirror style. You know, in fund one, we had a team that included two male partners, two female partners, a male and a female intern, and that was it. That was, it was a small team for fund one. And out of 25 companies that we invested in, 51% of the founders were women and 11% were African-American, 9% Latinx, 9% LGBTQ. I could go through all the stats. Now, not every stat was 50-50 because that would be impossible, but our, our demographic statistics are leaps and bounds better than most VC firms. And also we're a double minority GP, women owned and women held holding company, women run managed fund. So we look at it as just investing in the way that we see the world to exist. We invest in businesses that reflect the America we live in and the America we, that we love. It's almost like the question should be inversed. You know, it's, it's why is it so hard for Silicon Valley to fork over capital to the people who are clearly going to persevere harder, the underdogs who need and want this more than anything else. And I think part of it is laziness. A lot of VCs don't leave their backyard or their zip code to invest. I think a lot of it is just cronyism. And it's so much easier to kind of co-invest with the same four funds you've always co-invested with because those are your bros and you golf together and their sons work for your fund and you all went to Harvard together. I think it's, it's, also, it's, it's, it's also just kind of like looking at data a little too much. Well, 85% of the time when we back businesses at this stage from ooh, and then you're not leaving yourself open to what the future could look like and really reading into that data. I'm lucky that I was raised by a demographer. My mother's an academic. And so I know the statistics are subjective. I question every statistic I read. And I think if we were just more open-minded as an industry and stopped calling it DNI and stopped saying that, you know, at the moment you invest in a woman or a person of color, you're an impact investor, that's bullshit. Anyway, you know what that is? Actually, it's funny. We're talking about diversity right now. And all these Slack notifications that are coming through that you hear are from a group um, called Transact that Marina and I began two years ago for women emerging fund managers. There's 51 of us in the group now. And we began this because it's a very unique journey, not only to be a woman in venture, of which only 9% of partners globally are women. But if you really call that data down, even fewer are decision makers, even fewer own economics of carry, and even fewer own holding company economics. So what you're left with is this really, really small pool of women who own and operate their funds. And I take issue with this because how are we going to change the world if we're not capitalizing people who have the power to, through investment and through venture specifically, catalyze change? So we started Transact two years ago. It was just a group call for four of our friends. Alexia, who used to be the editor-in-chief of TechCrunch and then started Dream Machine, Heather Hartnett of Human Ventures, 
it was really just a, hey, how, how are you thinking about your back office? Who are you hiring for legal? You know, what, what best practices can I learn and glean from you? And then it exploded. And now this group that you're hearing slacking all day, every day, are women truly helping each other move the needles forward for their businesses. And so we take DNI very seriously at Transact, but for us, it's sort of just like table stakes. It's not even the core competency of what we do. It's just obviously how we should invest in the future to get to garner better returns. That's amazing. And thanks so much for sharing a bit about uh, Transact. So what's what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? I think there is a hive mind in VC. And actually, in real time, that is being changed. A lot of our perceptions of the world have been challenged tremendously this year because of the global pandemic, because of Black Lives Matter, because of Me Too, because of really brave vocal people standing up for you know, the diversity initiatives that they believe are long overdue in our industry. So I would say it's not so much what would I change, it's just I would keep the evolution moving on. I don't want us to, to look at 2020 and say, oh, remember that year when we thought that was important? That was like a time and a place. Almost like how the green spring on Twitter back in like 2008 era was a moment in time. There was an uprising and people were using social media to create these really kind of bold activist movements in the Middle East, but then you know, it's not quite the same as in the US where then real reform happened. And so in, in, in VC land, I'd like to see real transformative action change. So what does that mean specifically? I think there's a lot of onus on the part of limited partners, LPs. You know, every VC has an investor base themselves. When we say to founders, we're empathetic to your fundraising experience because we fundraise too, we mean it. We're on the road and we're investing in their companies, but then there are LPs who invest in us. And a lot of those LPs don't have diversity mandates. They don't have kind of impact mandates. And that's a shame because would they and could they, this industry would just change naturally. You know, you have to, at the end of the day, everybody has a boss. And if, and if it was imposed on us as opposed to left the GP's goodwill and conscience to invest the way that they've always invested, uh, we wouldn't really see progress. And so I'm pretty passionate about bringing LPs into the conversation and saying, you know, you have so much power and influence. How are you going to wield that to, you know, make the world a better place through capitalism? Yeah, I love that. And by the way, you're capturing, you're capturing me at a good time because most of my LPs are family offices or some fund of funds, but now we're wooing institutions. So I might be much more tight-lipped in the future when you know, <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not biting the hand that feeds me, so to speak. We have, we have one institution, um, but talk to me again in three years and see how conservative I am with my answer. Yeah, exactly. Probably you'll want to delete this episode. Soraya, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mike. I love the podcast and uh, appreciate your time. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this, I highly recommend checking out Soraya's full episode. 